This is episode number 662 of the Inner Fight Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for downloading, tuning in, listening when you're driving, walking, running, or maybe you just sat at home. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Hope you've had a fantastic week. We've had a great week here at Inner Fight. Loads of new stuff going on that I need to make you aware of. Yoga program has launched full gas. There's four yoga classes a day. Yes, you do need to do them. Try the different ones out. They're super good fun. Actually, our head of yoga is going to come on the show in a week or so and tell us all about that. Kids program is going nuts. Circuit class has launched as well. So get involved. And if you're a woman and you want to run, but you're not really sure, or a lady, should I say, you're not really sure where to start, reach out to our ladies run coach. She doesn't just do ladies. She does all sorts as well. Or men, should I say, all sorts. Weird. As well, Steph, shinafight.com. No matter where you are, she can take care of you. She has run clubs that run in person. She does it virtually as well. Give her a shout. That'd be absolutely awesome. But yeah, loads of stuff going on down here at the gym. And if you haven't passed by, just... To look at the place, please do that. And also of you that live in Dubai, or those of you that are visiting as well, but if you live in Dubai and you sort of listen to the show, but maybe you're a bit worried or a bit scared to come down, don't be. Come and have a chat. Come and have a walk around. You'll see that we're actually quite nice people. Today's show is with a gentleman called Chris Brannigan. Chris Brannigan has a daughter who he explains suffers from a very rare disorder. And for seven years of her life, he went on an incredible journey trying to figure out exactly what was wrong with his daughter. When he realized, he quickly realized that there was very little cure and very little research for her condition. So he set about raising funds. During lockdown of this year, he decided that he needed to raise awareness in order to raise funds. And the day after lockdown, He took a one-way train ticket to Land's End and walked all the way from Land's End, which is the bottom of the UK, to Edinburgh to raise awareness for his daughter and the research. What makes Chris's challenge incredibly remarkable is that he did that walk barefoot. And even more remarkable, he did it carrying a 25-kilo pack. This show is incredibly powerful. I had the hairs on the back of my neck standing up all the way through it. It is incredible. I use words phenomenal, incredible, mind-blowing literally over and over during the show because that's what it was. I think there's so much learning in it. There's so much to take from it. And I'm just so, so thankful that Chris literally poured his heart out for us. It's incredible. It's one of my favorite shows, I think, that I've ever, ever done. I hope you guys enjoy it. I clearly loved it. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is an absolutely incredible human being, Chris Brannigan. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. As I was saying there, this is one of the most phenomenal stories I have ever come across. Chris Brannigan joins us on Zoom. Chris, mate, I have to kick it off. Congratulations. Holy shit. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Mate, you have recently taken on what 
I don't, I actually don't know if people are, are, are genuinely at the outset of this show going to believe us, but you've walked barefoot 700 miles from one end of Great Britain to the other. Mate, tell us what on earth, what's it all about? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think it's worth pointing out, first of all, I'm not like an endurance athlete, you know, I'm not, I'm not an ultra runner, you know, I don't do this stuff for fun at all. Um, <clears throat> we did it as part of a fundraiser because I have a little girl who's eight years old called Hasty, and she has a really rare genetic condition called CDLS, which gets worse over time. So we knew we needed to raise a lot of money because we're going to create the first ever gene therapy for her condition. So uh, we came up with this idea straight after lockdown. We knew we've got to get out there. We've got to do something to really grab people's attention. So I spoke to some friends and I said, you know what? I think I'm going to do this walk, 700 mile sort of march across Britain. I'm going to wear 25 kilos of kit on my back. And they said, oh, that'll be good. You'll raise some good money. And I said, I'm going to do it barefoot. And they said, that's impossible. It can't be done. And then I knew at that point, you know, I had to, do the impossible if I was going to grab people's attention. Mate, we, the story is amazing. The, 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 the disease or the, the situation that Hasty's in is incredible and we'll go into that. But mate, just to give this a little bit of background, what, what is your background? You say you're not an endurance athlete, but mate, there's something there that, that yeah, I mean, there must be something there. Well, you say that. So I'm, I'm in the army, you know, I've been in the army for 13 years now, but you know, I'm not a Marine or a, or a paratrooper. I work in administration and finance, you know, I drive a desk full time. Uh, I drink tea, I eat biscuits mostly, you know, so <laughs> this, this uh, pushed me well outside my comfort zone. You know, I like to run and I keep fit, yeah. but I'm not, I'm not in any way special in any of those things, you know, but you know, my, my superpower, I suppose, is being a dad. And when you're a dad to a sick little girl, that gives you superhuman abilities, I suppose. Yeah. Mate, let's talk about that. It's the, the, the disease that has to be suffering from is Cornelia DeLange syndrome. For those of you that are interested, Google it. I did. Very interesting sort of situation that, that, that she's in, mate. Give us a little bit of a background on it. Yeah, so... We thought Hasty was going to be born with no problems, you know, all the scans looked good. But when she was born, she wouldn't eat at all. You know, she had lots of sort of gastro problems. Um, she was in and out of hospital loads of times, you know. Uh, and at one point I was, I deployed to Afghanistan, which is about six months old on operations. And I was called back about halfway through that tour because she was hospitalized in intensive care because of her feeding issues. You know, it affects her growth. And the really scary thing is that it gets worse. You know, so from puberty, kids with this condition get really severe mental health issues, depression, anxiety disorders. Some of them develop self-injurious behavior that's so severe that they can, you know, they can do themselves a permanent injury. Wow. So we're really racing against time for Hasty because she's already eight. So we've got maybe a two-year, three-year window to do this for her. When did you realize that, she was she was suffered from from this chris was it was it when she was born you sort of realized straight away or is there does it take a little bit of time 
as soon as she was put into my wife's arms after she was born, you know, we knew she looked different, you know, so we knew something wasn't right. Um, and, but unfortunately, it took us seven years to get a diagnosis, you know, because the diagnosis in the, in the UK just aren't really good, you know. So, and the sad thing about that is until you get the diagnosis, you can't get the right school, you can't get the right medical support, the right consultations, you can't get all those ducks in a row. So you're always fighting the tide. It's wow. been a real battle, to be honest. So anyone that's listening that's been suffering from a, a slight hamstring niggle and can't quite figure out why or where it's coming from, think of yourself, put yourself in Chris's shoes. Seven years to really get Hasty diagnosed, mate. That must have been an unbelievable seven years of life. Yeah, it was incredibly difficult. You know, when, when you know something's wrong with your daughter and, you know, for example... We just wanted to get her into a good school where she could learn. And, you know, the local council just kept pushing her into mainstream. We want her a mainstream. She was forgetting stuff that we had taught her, you know, so she was regressing in terms of education and knowledge. But, you know, they wanted to see that the cheapest option would fail before they would consider a more expensive option, you know. So it's really dull. And then on the medical side, it's exactly the same. Doctors, if they don't know what your condition is, they just give you the, the routine answer. You know, you take this tablet or that tablet, and it's all about saving money in the UK. And for that reason, during my walk, we dropped a letter at both Downing Street for the Prime Minister and at St Andrew's House in uh, Edinburgh for the First Minister of Scotland to highlight what we saw, some of the shortfalls of rare disease care in the United Kingdom. Mate, you say it was an incredibly challenging time. Give us some examples of, of, of the ways that you were challenged because I think that I can only imagine what you learned in those seven years passed over into the journey that we're going to talk about this barefoot march. Yeah, um, I think part of, the, part of the issue was that because Hasty's condition is rare, people don't get it. If you say my kid has leukemia or cancer or something, people get it. People have cancer in their life. You know, they empathize immediately. You'll get time off work. Your employer will be flexible. You know, schools will jump up and down to do whatever they can. But when you say I've got something that only affects 400 people in the UK that nobody's ever heard of, they just don't get it. And that meant we had to fight for every inch, you know, getting the right medicine just to control Hasty's gastro issues, for example, which were so severe that she wouldn't eat. You know, children, if they get hungry enough, will invariably eat. Slight technical, but we are back. And Chris, you were telling us all about some of the struggles and really where we're going with this, mate, is what you've learned in the first seven years of Hasty's life that you've taken into this walk. So let's revisit them, mate. What, what are the things that really sort of pushed you? and what, what have you learned in those seven years of, as, as you said, like just super tough times? You know, it, it was incredibly hard because with a rare condition that doctors just didn't get, we would take Hasty to hospital, you know, the registrar there, they just wouldn't understand, you know, they didn't get it, they had no training, so they're trying to always give you this set, which, which didn't work for us. And we were constantly fighting the tide and having to do our own research, not just accept what we were being told and go away and find the right answers and then fight for them. You know, for example, Hasty, because she had this gastro issues, they were giving her a tablet, you know, a child that wouldn't drink milk, 
you know, at three months old, they were giving her a tablet. And we said, how, how do you want us to give her a tablet? You know, she can't swallow it. And they said, well, crush it, you know, put it in some milk and give it to her, you know, and she'd throw that up. And then they give us a capsule, you know, and said, you know, take the little balls out of the capsule, put that in and then give it to her. Try that. It might be easier. We did that. She'd throw it up and we said, you know, this, this isn't working. You know, she can't take milk, never mind solids. What are we supposed to do? If she throws this stuff up, we don't know how much she's taken, how much she hasn't taken. And they said, count the little balls when she's thrown up and then give her that money back. Oh my God. And her, we were pulling our hair out and Hasty finally ended up in intensive care, as I said before. And we met another parent who said, why aren't you taking the liquid form of this uh, medicine? And we were just in shock. We were like, there's a liquid form? And they said, she said, yeah, but, but the doctors won't tell you because it's expensive. You know, a bottle costs 50 pounds or something. Wow. And at, at this point, I had come from Helmand province, you know, uh, from a patrol base somewhere, you know, 36 hours before and I called the registrar in and I said, why am I, why is my daughter not getting the medicine she needs? She needs this medicine. Oh, well, you know, it's, yeah, we don't always prescribe that. And I said, you just need to leave this room right now and get me that medicine. And that's it. And for seven years, every aspect of Pasty's life has been like that. We've had to just fight tooth and nail and claw to get her even the most basic things that she needs. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally almost speechless, isn't it? And, and at a time where we are now with, with, with health and with the public health service in the UK, we could probably actually, I mean, mate, I haven't really lived in the UK for, for since sort of 2000, but we could probably do a whole show about uh, frustrations related to that health system. But mate, you've taken this proactively. And as we sort of said at the start of the show, during lockdown, you decided to do something, let's say a little bit different, mate, in the attempt to, and, and, and you've done phenomenal, we'll come to some of the figures later, but to raise money for more research for what Hasty was suffering from. So talk to us a little bit about that, mate. Like obviously it was born out of the frustrations, but where are we going with the fundraising and what is actually needed? Where is it going to get to? So uh, again, a similar story. We were told when we got the diagnosis when Hasty was seven, they said, there's nothing you can do. There's no treatment. There's no cure. You know, you just have to go home and just in, enjoy her as much as you can and deal with the symptoms. And that never sat well with us. And we went through a whole grieving process and we just researched and researched. And the more doctors we talked to who were involved in gene therapy kept saying, you know, you can make a gene therapy. You could actually create a gene therapy for this condition. And uh, that's what we set about to do. So we figured out it was going to cost us about 400,000 pounds to conduct the research to show that it's possible and that it's safe and it could affect, you know, could be beneficial for kids with CDLS. So in January this year, we started fundraising and with the aim of raising 400,000 pounds, we set up a charity. We put together a scientific advisory board to help us with the science because we're not scientists. Yeah. And we're working with a great lab in the States who are working on this project right now to create the first ever gene therapy to treat children with CDLS and hopefully my little girl. It's, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Like how it, when there isn't a, a cure for something or there isn't a solution, 
the the resilience you've had to sort of go out and say, well, you know, we'll make one. And you've wrapped it up very nicely there in like 60 seconds. And I can imagine it was just so much, so much bigger than that, mate. But folks, do go and check out. I'll put a link in the show notes, mate. You've done phenomenal. Last time I checked, which was just a, a couple of days ago, you'd already raised 600,000, over 600,000 pounds. So that initial 400,000 pounds has been raised. There is a cost, mate. And maybe we want to talk about that whilst we're on it. Ongoing. Um, for, for the clinical trials as well of somewhere over two million pounds. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. So the, the first 400,000 pounds, which thankfully now we've raised, will fund the research project. So they'll, they'll create a gene therapy and they'll be able to say, we know it's safe and it'll be beneficial for kids. And then to actually give it to the kids so we can see that it works on them and it's safe and everything, those clinical trials are probably going to cost Two million pounds so we're continuing to fund this and generate cash so we're in lockdown and <laughs> you're sort of having a think mate where <laughs> let's go but you, you skipped over it at the start where does this where, where does this idea come from come on <laughs> honestly I, you know we i don't know if i had a bad pizza or something <laughs> but my wife and I were just sat in bed and we, we were in the middle of lockdown. Our, our fundraising had flatlined. You know, we were really panicking because we thought we're not going to be able to do this in time for Hasty. So we knew as soon as lockdown ended, we had to be able to launch on something big, a big fundraiser. And we, as I said at the start, we wanted to really grab people's imagination. And you, you'll know, and people who watch this will know, Land's End of John of Groats is sort of an iconic route. Yeah. You know, we want to do something really big. And, but we needed something extra. And I can't remember where it came from, but I said to my wife, maybe I should do it perfect. And she said, maybe that will work. And I, I spoke to some friends and they just said, there's no way you can do that. And uh, yeah, we did it. And I didn't do enough preparation because during lockdown, I was working full time uh, in support of the NHS along with my unit. Wow. So longest sort of prep run I did barefoot was 11 miles. And considering the first day was, I think, 22 or four miles, some days were 30 plus, and I, I didn't do any of my prep carrying weight, so I added 25 kilos on top of that as well. So, Tough. I mean, mate, let, let's put it in, 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 in simple terms. The, from, from Land's End, you, you went up to Edinburgh, which is 700 miles, which for anyone, I mean, I think my dad did it in 95 on his bike. They, they, they rode up in, in seven or eight days. And, and lots of people do this route. We spoke just last week to, to, to Georgie, who's going to run, actually, she's going to run from the top, so from John O'Groats all the way down. The, the point is, this is a huge challenge, mate, on its own you would have got an incredible amount of support and an incredible amount of respect just doing it. Why, why the barefoot and why the backpack of 25 kilos? You know, I think barefoot was because we needed an edge. You know, we couldn't afford to miss the target, so we had to aim high. So we had to really do something that would captivate people. And as I said at the start, people who we had spoken to in advance said, there is no way you can do it. It's just impossible, you know? And we even asked someone, we said, would you donate if someone was doing sort of across the country, 700 miles barefoot? And she said, no, because I, I wouldn't believe that they were actually doing it. I couldn't trust that they were. So we thought that's it. 
that, that's the reaction we need. We need people to be in disbelief and want to dig and, you know, and figure out what's going on here. And the, the whole you know, day sack and 25 kilos was because the military community had been really kind to us. You know, they've really supported us, you know, so we, we wanted to bring them with us all the way. And, uh, and it did that, you know. So all along the way, we had lots of people from the Army and the Air Force and the Navy who came out and walked with me and they wore their kit as well. And, and that was really amazing. Right. Phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's, it's all phenomenal. But let's jump into, you've made the decision. Your wife is super supportive and also a little bit crazy because she's agreed to let her husband go and do this walk. How did you feel in sort of the, the, the next few days after you decided and you decided barefoot, mate? Like, did you start thinking about the training? Did you start like Googling how to toughen up the, the soles of your feet? Where does, it, where does the training start? Yeah, so I think I had about six weeks to lead in uh, and I was pretty busy, so I couldn't squeeze in a lot of training. But the first training event I did was just a one mile walk. I just walked with my son. I had no shoes on. I was like hopping around. I was like, oh, this is not nice. And then I, I sort of graduated up to longer walks and longer runs. And, you know, I, I did my best to prep my feet. My focus was always on my feet because I thought my fitness is okay. I'll survive on the fitness side. And I ran that sort of last 11 mile run, I think I did. I did it in just over two hours and I thought that's okay. You know, so when I, when I get out on the ground, I can do 10 miles in two hours. I'll have a long lunch break, I'll relax and rest and then I'll do another 10 miles. And that, most days that'll have me done. Right. That was a gross miscalculation. I made so many miscalculations. It all went slightly pear-shaped when I started. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, how is that, that was the, so that was the game plan at the start. 10 miles in the morning, you, you made it sound like you just check into a nice pub, nice pub lunch, plowmans, all of that kind of stuff. And then yeah. 10 miles in the afternoon. What was actually the reality, mate? Oh, um, yeah. So day one, Boris Johnson on the Friday said lockdown's going to end on Monday. I bought a train ticket and on Monday morning I was stood in Lance End. You know, that flash to bang was that fast. Yeah. Uh, I made a video in the morning. I said, look, I'm doing this thing. We launched it out into the internet through Facebook and Instagram. And then I just started walking. And, you know, it, it was really odd because I was sort of, you know, in this charity t-shirt, you know, wearing combat trousers and a day sack and I had a big blue sign over my head that said, how far would you go for your child? Yeah. And I just, you know, I was a bit self-conscious. But you know what, as soon as I got out on the road, I met some people who said, what are you doing, where are you going? And, you know, I give them a flyer and they really got on board and they started sharing it. And, you know, that social media bubble started to grow straight away. Yeah. But the road from Land's End was horrible. You know, it was really spiky, sort of aggregate stuff. And within the first mile, I had cut the end off both of my big toes because the extra weight had caused me to sort of drag my feet. I wasn't used to it. So I picked up two injuries straight away. And... I, I couldn't run as fast because I was carrying more weight. I hadn't trained with weight. So the, I didn't finish that day, I think, until 7 o'clock in the evening. I started at 9 in the morning. And I hadn't calculated for the fact that people would stop me all the time and say, what are you doing and what are you up to? And I wanted to speak to them. So I thought four hours of work actually turned out to be, on average, between 8 and 10 hours of work every day. And I was just exhausted, you know, and the weather was – we had some of the hottest days of the year while I was walking – and we had torrential storms, you know, 
the first two weeks were by far and away the worst. Mate, how do you put that? How did you plan? Like, because that for like, <laughs> it's almost like it's completely different. People are stopping you along the way. So, what was your thought about? Okay, this is how the miles that you're going to cover aside. This is how the day will go. Or like, I've got to cover this. I need to cover it in this much time. How does one go about planning an adventure? such as what you went on well as i said there you know i had this idea in my mind of how i was going to go and then that all just disintegrated you know within by lunchtime of day one <laughs> and really i went from sort of thinking sort of strategically about it to survival mode you know within within the first few days i was really suffering you know my health started to go down i lost weight really rapidly and sort of high temperatures and carrying so much weight and working all day i started to feel quite ill my feet were becoming increasingly sore you know just with the mileage so every day was a little bit worse than the day before and i cut the bottom of my feet both of the balls of my feet got cut just from the way my sort of my footfall was working they became infected. So at some point, just after a weekend, I had the balls of my feet were like full of pus. I was walking on these bubbles of pus and infection. And I was like walking on razor blades, you know. So I was just doing my best to get through the day, you know. And the idea of sort of right, breaking it down into days and walking 700 miles, couldn't, I couldn't cope with that anymore, you know. For me, I got into a mode of I need to just get to the tree. I need to get round the corner and over the next hill. So I did 700 miles of tiny little incremental steps just to get through. Um, but I had some great people with me and, and they really helped me. But that, that's been like our whole journey with this, yeah. with this treatment. You know, the idea of setting up a charity and creating a gene therapy is too big for a mom and dad team like we are. We've just broken it down into little chunks and we just fight away at them every day. I mean, that's a, that's a massive learning for, for people that are listening so far. If you, if you think that something's too big, just think back to what Chris said there. Literally, you're trying to get to that, to that tree. Mate, talking about support team, obviously, as you said, you had a lot of people coming with you on the way. Did you plan, like, support special stops? How did you plan where you'd sleep at night? Did you just sort of keel over on the side of the road with this pus coming out of your feet? Like I've seen some great stuff on your Instagram, which at times it does look like that, mate. So how did you go about all of that? You know, it's funny because lots of people, when I get this, is they'd say, you know, well, what about your team? You know, what are they going to do? And, and I would have to say, I don't have, I don't have a team, you know, because I didn't have a support team. It was me, my mobile phone. I had a one-man tent in my day sack. The sort of food I enough food to get through four or five hours until I find a place I had enough water and like spare clothes that that was it and sort of med kit to look after my feet and stuff in case I got injured which I did lots and so there was there was no plan I just walked when I got hungry I sat down at the side of the road and I ate and if I got tired I literally just I had a like a, a down jacket with me I just lay it under my head or over me and just slept for 30 minutes and I got on and walked again. And I didn't have to use my tent that often, thankfully. People put me up in their homes. They'd say, oh, Chris is coming into my town. You know, can, can we host him? And, you know, so I, I had a place to sleep a lot of time, a lot of the time. And lots of barracks that I was moving through, you know, put me up for the night. But wow. there was no support plan. I had enough kit to keep going for a day, 
and then I would replan at night and just keep going. I was a bit like, as I said, I was in survival mode. It was like an animal. When I was tired, I slept. When I was hungry, I ate. And then at the end of the day, I curled from my feet, had a wash, and then went again. It's, it's phenomenal because you, you said it earlier, lockdown ended, I got on the train, and I went down to, to Lanza. And that's literally, I'm learning this now, that's literally what you did and you're with, with this mission to get to Edinburgh. I mean, it's phenomenal, mate. Were there times where you started to think, how am I going to get, is this, have I bitten off too much? My feet are in, in this condition. Even that tree is too hard. Were there those times, mate? Uh, I, I would not be lying if I said every day, at least once. Really? Um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned my wife earlier on. You said, you know, this, she let you do it. Every time I felt low, you know, and I thought, I'm really, I can't do this anymore. I'm in too much pain. And I was afraid of injuring myself permanently and stuff like that. I'd call my wife and she, <laughs> she had one word. She used to say, run. And I, and I would get annoyed and be like, you don't understand it's, you know, I'm, I'm sore, I've hurt my leg. And she would just say, just run. You'll be okay, run. And, you know, thank God for her because she really helped my mental state uh, and, you know, kept me going. And it, it was really genuinely horrible because I, I was broken at various points. When I, got, when I got to day 14, I actually spent the night at home because the route took me through my home. And I woke up in the morning and I was in pain and I had gotten dressed, I was ready to go. And my wife said, you know, there's guys outside who've come to walk with you. You know, you know there's like 10 sort of tough army blokes in gear all stood outside waiting for me. And I said, I need a minute. I just need to sit in the dining room. I sat in the dining room on my own and I just contemplated throwing the tile in. Really? And my wife said, no, just come out, come outside. And I talked to the guys and my neighbors were in the street and they were saying, yeah, Chris, you know, you're doing well. And I said, you know, I don't think I can do this at all. And she said, let's walk to the end of the street. So I walked into the street, you know, holding her shoulder, you know, trying to put as much of my weight on her as possible. And when we got to the end of the street, she said, let's just get to the edge of town. You know, just walk for a bit. And again, you know, I hobbled literally hobbling to the edge of town. I had been in accident and emergency two days before and the doctor said, you need to stop right now because your feet are busted and if you'll do yourself a permanent injury. But we had to get a Downing Street by the end of this day to drop the letter with the Prime Minister. So we were on a time scale. And then we got to the edge of town. I said, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I stepped away from the guys who were with us. I was embarrassed because I thought I wasted their time. So they'd driven across London for four hours to, to start the day with me. Wow. And she said, just, just run. See how you get on. Just run. And if you want to give up in 10 minutes, just give up. But just run now. And I did. And 26 miles later, we were in Downing Street, handing a letter across the door. You know, and it was those guys beside me. They talked to me all day. And they were the positive, the positive voice in my head that said, you know, this is great. Oh, this road's lovely. You've got a nice bit of shade here. You know, and they kept the sort of dark voices away. And they kept me going. Right. That's... <laughs> It is, it's absolutely phenomenal. And, and your wife sounds like an absolutely incredible support, mate. And obviously in, in, in Hasty's life and probably before Hasty's life, you guys have been through a lot together. But 
how does how does what you did maybe it's too early to say but how does it change that relationship with your wife oh you know what i think that's a really good question the whole situation with hasty really put us through the the ringer you know from a marriage point of view it puts so much pressure on you as a family to try and do the best for a little girl who's sick um because you're stressed all the time yeah. in addition to both working full-time jobs and having two other kids and just the normal pressures of life you know we were sort of fighting this uphill struggle plus the charity stuff and everything else you know it's really hard we've had a hard time but if i'm honest you know she she was the she was the positivity behind the scenes that just kept saying keep going you know it's only in your head your body's good keep going you look strong and you know when i came back actually uh, it's been really great from a relationship point of view because now I, I understand that she knows me better than i know myself you know when i think i'm done she knows i've got more in the bank and she reminds me which is great so for us the whole experience has really brought us together which has been awesome thanks for answering that mate that was uh, that's quite a it's obviously quite a deep question and and it's something that you know i think that will give a lot of power to to a lot of people in the way that you've answered it so i really do appreciate that mate moving on to the people that supported you we've touched on them a little bit mate but i want to ask you a question you said there that you know the guys were super positive and stuff and you also said that you were sleeping in people's houses were there times where maybe you'd get to someone's house or someone a bunch of people would join you and you'd just be like can you guys just shut the fuck up please i'm just in so much pain i just don't want to talk like there must have been some quite interesting and i don't want to upset anyone so if anyone's listening that, that did walk with chris it's nothing personal but there must have been some interesting times mate yeah i mean it was it, it was there was lots of that you know and i i developed all kinds of weird behaviors and coping mechanisms <laughs> along the way. so I mean, the best people, there was a guy called Jake Dean, who's a young guardsman in the Coldstream Guards. And he, you know, he was brilliant. He, he took three days off work, you know, three days holiday to run beside me. And, you know, he just talked to me the whole time, but he never expected a response, you know, because I was like scanning the ground, you know, I never saw the landscape really. I was looking for sharp glass and things I didn't want to stand on, you know, I saw 700 miles worth of like one square meter of ground. <laughs> yeah. He just told me about his family and, you know, what he's doing at the weekend and his job and, you know, was always positive, you know, and never expected me to say anything, which is really cool. But then lots of people would ask me questions, you know, and I'm like running, 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 you know, and sometimes I would just give a thumbs up, you know, like, yeah, I can hear you and I understand, but, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't speak, you know, I was just, I needed to get around the corner, as I said earlier on. And then, the, and then sometimes, you know, I'd sort of, on Tourette's, you know, so you'd be running along and stand at something sharp and, <laughs> and shout or sometimes people would ask me questions and I would like say a number because one of the things that helped me focus my mind on sort of getting away from how sore my feet, my feet were was I would just, I'd do the times tables in my head over and over again because you really had to focus when you're tired to, to get the right numbers, you know? Yeah. And when, you're, when I was in that bubble thinking about those numbers, I wasn't thinking about 
how tired I was, how sore my feet and my legs were, you know, I just kept going. So someone would say, oh, Chris, you, do you fancy stopping up the road? And I'd go, 54. Uh, yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> right, that's, it's actually quite funny because that's a technique that I've used before, sort of adding stuff up or, or calculating splits and, you know, and then someone interrupts you or something happens or a dog runs across the road and it's like, shit, now I've forgotten it all because we're under this fatigue, but then you've got no rush and you can go all the way back to the start, can't you? It's, um, exactly. it's an interesting one. Mate, talk about a little bit about the fatigue. Obviously, physically, your, your body was starting to get tired. Talk to us a little bit about, aside from the pain, how the fatigue kicked in, physical fatigue, mental fatigue, and, and maybe how you dealt with that. Yeah, uh, physical fatigue was definitely an issue, particularly on the hotter days. You know, I don't cope well in the heat at the best of times, being an Irish boy, you know. <laughs> I tend to suffer a bit. But um, I think I always took the view that it was okay to stop. You know, I wasn't, I was on my own timeline. I just had to get to the end of the day, you know. And sometimes I was really racing the pace and I was hurting myself because, you know, I just wanted to be done. You know, I want to, I want to get the day done. I don't have to remind myself that it's okay to stop, you know, just find, find a piece of shade and get down there and, and, and just rest for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is, and then get back on the road. But the real battle for me was mental. And it was, it was in the evenings and in the mornings. Once I was on the road, you know, after the first half mile, I got into a stride and I could go, you know, and that was, that was my best part of the day mentally. But either side of that, in the evening, you know, I would dread the next day, particularly if I knew I had like 26 or 30 more or more miles to go. You know, I would start worrying about the road surface. I worry about how I was going to get there, you know, and, you know, looking foolish in front of people, which in hindsight, I realized was probably a foolish thought itself. But, you know, your mind plays all these tricks on you. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night sometimes two, two, three times, you know, in a cold sweat because, you know, it was just sort of constantly, even in my sleep, I was, I was worrying about how I was going to get there. But what focused my mind always was I had, I had Hasty in my mind, you know, I carried a yellow bucket with me the whole way to collect donations. And I just used to imagine I was, I was holding her hand, you know, along the way and that helped focus me. And also remembered that if I stopped, Stopping was a privilege, you know. I could have chosen to give it up any time. I could have just gotten a taxi and said, I'm off, lads. I'm going home. <laughs> Bad enough of this. But I knew Hasty couldn't give up. She couldn't just decide to be better. So I just had to keep taking steps. So when I, got, when I got to the end of my sort of physical limits, I'd have a rest and then just say, you know, being able to stop's a privilege. You know, in the next two miles or whatever I need to do, you know, people will give me money in the bucket, which is what we need. People will share on Instagram and Facebook and I'll go farther. You know, every step is something in the bank for Hasty's future, for her health. And having that sort of overriding aim, you know, of focus my mind, it kept me going through through the fatigue. Absolutely, mate. It's, it's all quite mind-blowing. When you have that level of pain, you, you talked about like not being able to sleep properly from a mental standpoint. Did the pain in your feet stop you from, from sleeping, basically? just Was it keeping you awake, mate? Were your feet throbbing and, and, and just uncomfortable from that standpoint as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, I had, when, 
in fact, the whole way through, I was getting these sort of like electrical pains, you know, from about day four, I was getting the electrical pains in my feet, I think just because the nerves were getting hammered, yeah. you know, on the road every day, all the nerves in your body end up in your feet somewhere. You've got 7,000 nerve endings in the bottom of each foot. Yeah. And they were getting punished every day. So sometimes at night, I wasn't able to sleep because it would take me two hours just to to get through it during the day I could ignore it because there was so much distraction going on but when you're lying in a quiet room and all you want to do is sleep and you've got these stabbing pains in your feet intermittently that made it really really difficult and it woke me up in the middle of the night too so often I was waking up in the mornings really tired you know and and really in need of rest but you know I, I had no choices sadly and on the whole journey the whole I did 35 days of walking I had three days where I stopped I had two days in London after the doctor said, you need to stop right now. And I had one day farther north because my family showed up to surprise me. So I thought I'll just spend one day with the family. But yeah, just getting the right amount of rest was a real struggle. So mate, you said just there, that was actually going to be my, my next question. And you led into it quite nicely. It took you 35 days of walking. <laughs> with no shoes, with 25 kilos on your back in. You, you said the weather in the UK was nice, but you and I both know that there was probably some rough days, but weather's for weak people. 35 days, mate, it, must be, it, it just must be this incredible section of life. You know what? It, it was incredible. Um, you know, even looking back at it now, as I said, I don't know, when I look at the map, I just think, how did, I, how did that happen? Was, I, was that actually me? You know, I don't remember whole sections. I remember like little bits. I remember all the little vignettes. And I met so many incredible people. And that was really the highlight because people in some cases would drive across the country to find me. I was in Cobham near London one day, just running down the road, me and one other guy just jogging along. And this guy sort of waved and we stopped. I stopped to say hello to everybody who showed an interest. Wow. And he said, mate, I'm so glad I found you. I've just driven from Bristol. So you'd driven four hours or something. Wow. And he said, I just want to give you a check. And he gave me a check for a thousand pounds for the charity. And, you know, it blew my mind. One, that he was giving me a thousand pounds. It's a lot, a lot of money. Yeah. But he could have done that online, you know, but he drove from Bristol to find me because you know he had similar things going on in his life and i met hundreds of people who have sick kids or have lost kids or a family member and they somehow just felt connected to what i was doing i met sometimes people in the street i remember one woman distinctly when i was in devon and when i when i stopped she was already sort of crying i think people just really connected with a struggling parent. I wasn't an athlete who was trying to like break a record. You know, I, I, there are lots of people who could have done my journey and done it faster and with a smile on their face. And I really find it difficult. I struggled the whole way. Yeah. But I think people understood that. I was just a dad who was just fighting for a little girl. And you know, all those connections, I always struggle with names. But I remember almost everybody's name that I met, that I had a chat with, because if they had a similar story, it just, you know, it was burned and imprinted in my mind. And there are so many people who are facing these kinds of 
battles in their life with illness and sickness. Yeah, I think that's what makes this absolutely remarkable. And it really is, mate. It's, it's, it's one of the, when, when one of my friends sort of sent me, and that's how I, I got onto you through, through Instagram. And I started to read around it a little bit. And even in, in, in the early parts of this show, you know, you're like, no, I'm not really, I'm not really an endurance athlete. <laughs> Longest training run was 11 miles. And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sat here just thinking it's just, it's almost, it's almost incomprehensible, mate. It really is, Chris. And, 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 and I have so much respect for, for what you've done and, and all of these links to these various things and, and things you're saying there. It just... It makes it, it makes it phenomenal, mate. And I, I, I can't respect you enough for it. It's just, it's wild. But I think that's what makes it so special is that, you know, when I go out and do some endurance stuff, but I have a training plan and I'm strict and I'm a bit geeky about it. And you've got on a train the day after lockdown with a pack and gone to Land's End, mate. And it's, it's funny in a way, isn't it? You know, it's just... It's, it's absolutely remarkable, mate. It really is. I want to ask you about the doctors in London when you took those two days off, mate. And was there a fear of doing yourself a permanent injury? And, and, and did that, you know, okay, a lot of doctors are, and I can say it because it's my show, full of shit. But when you, you know, when you've probably got a bit messy feet and you can genuinely see it, like... What was, your, what was your thought, aside from Hasty, for your own health at that stage, mate? Uh, you know, I, I was worried. Um, I didn't really want to hurt myself. Yeah. But at the same time, I didn't want to. I could never be sure whether I was lying to myself or not. So I saw the doctors actually in Basingstoke. I think it was on like day 13. And they said, you need to stop now. Take at least two days. Take antibiotics. Don't walk, you know, stay off your feet. Yeah. And it got my feet really tight and I bloody hurt, you know, and I, I, I had a couple of blokes, the three blokes who were meant to run with me that day from my regiment. And I came out and met them, you know, and I was on crutches on day 13. And, and they were like, what's going on? And I told the story. And I went, I think, for a mile or a mile and a half on crutches. And it was so hard, you know still on my feet and then on my body and it was awkward and, you know, slow and I was frustrated and actually, you know, I got angry then. And I was like, this is really annoying me, you know, and I pulled the bandages off my feet and then I sort of went in the crutches with no bandages. And then I thought oh, that feels a bit better, uh, but I was still angry. So at some point I just said, I don't care about this anymore. Let's run, let's run. So we started running and I held the crutches in my hand. And then at some point we met someone on the road, you know, and they were like, oh, you want a drink? And we we're having a chat as we normally do. And I said, can you just take these crutches? I don't want them anymore. And I threw them in the boot. And we ran on that day and the next day. And it was only when I got to London, when we finished that sort of appointment with 10 Downing Street, that we took two days off. And then the pain just like cascaded on me. I spent two days in a flat in like a barracks. I couldn't walk to the toilet. If I had to go to the toilet, which was the only movement I was really making, I crawled because I couldn't bear to have my feet touch the floor. And I was, I was really anxious then about setting off on the next leg, which was, was going north because I was worried about injury. Yeah. But my wife, as usual, I got on the phone. I'm like, God, you know what's going to happen? And she'd say, you're okay. You know, you're actually okay. From the ankle up, you're strong, you know, yeah. just run. 
And, and she was right. She knew me better than I knew myself. So in the aftermath, mate, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm a little bit respectful of your time, Chris. I'm, I'm sure you're a busy man. I won't take too much more of it. But in the aftermath, have there been any permanent injuries? Are you, you know, I, I would imagine that it took, took a while to get feeling back. And yeah, I guess when you finished, uh, you've, you've probably crawled a few days since then, mate. But how, are, how is the body holding up? Um, yeah, my feet were super sensitive when I finished, you know, because from London to Edinburgh was 20 days. It was painful. And, you know, some of the ground when you get north, it's pretty, pretty challenging. But within a, a few days, I was fine, you know, in the sense that my, the bottoms of my feet healed up, you know, any cuts and wounds I had went away. And um, I was still getting a lot of nerve pain. Uh, I think I've got some kind of trap nerve somewhere in my sciatic nerve. And I was getting these electrical pains still on my feet. But as of yesterday, they've sort of gone away. You know, I've been out. I've done a couple of barefoot runs. I haven't really worn shoes in two weeks. <laughs> I don't know. I'm in this weird space where putting shoes on feels weird and uncomfortable, but also still don't really like walking barefoot. So, you know, you just got to choose one. It's a little bit of a catch-22, isn't it, mate? <laughs> yeah. Mate, do you, obviously, with, with your job and, and, and in the military, we hear a lot about sort of post-traumatic stress and, and these kind of situations. Do you think that, we, and we spoke about it a little bit before, like parts of it are a blur. How do you feel, where are you at mentally with what you did now? You know, that's a really good question, actually. Nobody's asked me that before. Um, I, I, you know, this is silly, you know, and I hesitate even to say it, but I had nightmares for a week after the event, so I still couldn't sleep properly because I'd wake up in the middle of the night worrying about what I had to do the next day. So I'm thinking, I haven't planned my route, you know, oh my God, what's it going And then I would I'd realize, oh, I'm actually done now. Yeah. So there was a week where my body and my mind somewhere was still in a state of stress and I was waking up sweating in the middle of the night. Um, because, you know, it was incredibly difficult for me, you know, mentally and physically. And it took probably a week to 10 days just to get through that. But you know what? We, I thought when we started this, if we could raise 50 grand, that would be incredible. 50K would be amazing. And when I crossed the finish line, as you said, you know, we've total fundraising now is 625 or something. So we've raised an incredible amount of money. People had never heard of my daughter's condition. Nine millions of people have heard about it. And, you know, the upwelling of support we've had from all over the country and the world has just been just inspiring, you know. So I think I can't help but feel good about it. And I'm in a good place now. That's amazing, mate. I wanted to ask you, you must have had, you said along the way, people started to, to, to hear about you. I was actually honored surprised that you you got back to me and have agreed to re record a show mate but how is the media attention what's been the impact of of your little uh, visit to downing street that must have been a nice one is it's is the is the snowball effect starting to take place for you definitely towards the end of the journey we were getting a lot of media interest you know on the last day one of the challenges of getting to the finish line was i kept getting phone calls from newspapers and radios and tv people they're like we want to come and see you and at the end of the day or tomorrow and i was like i'm running i'm running i can't really talk <laughs> uh, so that has been a lot of interest and, and we've got you know like 
TV people coming to see me today. But it's funny because when we started fundraising back in January, yeah. to get any media interest at all was a siege. You know, nobody was interested in a dad who was trying to help his little girl. You know, I had to take my shoes off and throw myself out on this epic journey before the media would really sit up and take notice. So I'm glad we got there, but you know, it's, it's been a battle. Yeah. I like how openly you speak about things like that, mate, because I, I'm, I'm with you on so many of these points that you've made and, and you're not afraid to, uh, to, to air them, which I, I think is, it's really important, mate. I mean, yeah, you've done something incredible and, and that does in itself get attention, but you know, the, your daughter is still your daughter before you started it and still needed what she needs now. And, and I, yeah, I think it's good that you've gone through the pain though, mate. I think you've learned a lot of good things. So <laughs> I think it's a, a life experience, mate. I guess a lot of people are thinking, where does this journey go? And, and sort of two final questions before, before I let you go. Is there, firstly, is there a massive sort of timeline for Hasty to, to, to get the treatment that, that you, and, and to get this research done? Is the clock ticking, mate? It is, yeah. So Hasty turns nine in December, and we know that her condition degenerates from puberty. So right. that could be as soon as, you know, if we're really unlucky, it could be in a year, yeah. it could be two years. The work has started on the gene therapy now, and um, thankfully we have all the money we need for that. And we're hoping that will be finished by December next year. So when Hasty's due to turn 10, you know, and if we have the money, we'll be able to bounce straight into clinical trials and hopefully she'll be able to benefit from that treatment. And, and then we can ensure she never has to go through that degenerative stage, which would be amazing. So we're, we're really racing hard and that's why we've had to sort of throw ourselves into these things. You know, we're not like a big charity, you know, where there's administrative processes and lots of forms. It's my wife and I basically, and everything's planned, you know, right now. And that is stressful, but it means we've got agility. You know, we can get things done. And we're paying for all of the costs of the charity out of our own pocket. You know, printing T-shirts and flyers. Yeah. You know, Chris Brannigan pays for that. So every penny that comes in as a donation goes straight to the research team so they can get that important work done. Incredible. And folks, as I said earlier, please do head over to the show notes. I'll put all the links in there for all of your fundraising page and everything, mate, and also links so that people can follow your journey. Uh, some of the footage, some of the images from your social media, they're funny, they're moving, they're, they're, they're literally everything, mate. So I want to thank you for, sh for sharing that. The final question I have, mate, and it's, I think this comes a little bit from, from the endurance world. We always do it, and sometimes it's quite annoying, but... People will always say when you've done something great like this, so Chris, what's next? <laughs> Man, you know, I'll, 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 give the, I'll give the basic answer first is, I don't know, you know, so it's funny. People kept saying to me towards the end in the last week, you know, you must be thinking about what's next. And I was like, what? No, man, I just need to, I'm trying to get to the end of today. You know, but looking back now with the benefit of hindsight and my sort of rose-tinted glasses, you know, I think it was incredible. I wouldn't want to hurt myself like that again, but it was such an amazing journey. I got to see, I went through 20 counties. I saw places I would never have otherwise seen, met so many amazing people. So 
I don't know what's next in, in terms of that, but I think there will be something coming. But the other thing that someone asked me on the finish line was, five minutes after I finished, they said, would you do it again? And the simple answer would have been no, but I said, and it was true, I said, if I thought by just picking up my bag now and just walking away from my family again and just walking back and do the rhythm reverse, I could help one little kid and change their life, I, I would have done it. Yeah. No, because nobody fights for these kids with rare conditions. You know, they're, they're a forgotten population. Yeah. And if I thought there was a kid there who could have benefited from me putting myself through the ring for another 35 days, I would have just done it. No problem. Incredible, mate. I can see that. I can see it's absolutely genuine, mate. And it's just phenomenal. I think I've used that word probably 20 or 30 times in this show, mate, but I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. It's amazing. Where it all comes from is amazing. And mate, I want to thank you for, for, for sharing it to me, to, 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 to our listeners, actually just the way that we spoke and it's, you know, we've taken almost an hour now as well. So, you know, but it's so, it's so amazing, mate, just real life lessons from a real life guy and mate, is phenomenal you you will do something i'm telling you right now you will do something more because this this endurance thing it's almost like a it's like a disease in itself <laughs> it just sort of attacks the body and and i'm sure because you've been able to do so many great things in in this and raise all that money i mean 620 pounds is just it's 620,000 pounds is it's phenomenal mate so thank you chris so much mate we'll continue to to, to push it and, and to share it but congratulations mate unbelievable thank you so much i appreciate you having me awesome